Right, good morning. Um, good to see you. So I'm John. I'm going to be talking uh, for the next little bit. Um, so at the moment in the summer, we're doing a little series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, this is now the third. Uh, I think, it, yeah, it is, isn't it? This is the third one. Um, so I'm going to be speaking on, for, uh, you can see there, it says 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 3, 13. And I'm calling this talk From Corinth with Love. Yay. Okay, right. Um, so Simon did a talk a few weeks ago on the first part, and then Rob did a talk, was it last week? And then I'm going to talk this week. Right. Um, let's go on with it. So just to recap what we've done up to this point. So 1 Thessalonians is a letter. That's what it is. It was written to the people in Thessalonica, written to some Christians specifically in Thessalonica, written by Paul, Timothy and Silas. And um, it was written because so they had so Paul, Timothy and Silas had been in Thessalonica for just a few months. So if you want to hear more details about this, listen to Simon's talk uh, from a few weeks ago. It's really good. So um, they'd been in Thessalonica for a few months and they'd started a church there. They hadn't been there for very long and then they'd been forced to leave. This is the people writing that to Paul, Timothy and Silas have been forced to leave um, for reasons against their war. They've been forced to leave the city and they were concerned about the Christians that they had the newly become Christians they had left behind in Thessalonica. The church which had only been going a few months. They were concerned about it because they'd had to leave before they really before they would have liked to have done. Um, so eventually they sent Timothy to Thessalonica to see how they were doing. To, to see if they were still strength, staying strong in Jesus, to see if they were doing okay, because they knew that the Christians in Thessalonica were also being persecuted by the people there. Timothy has now come back to Paul and given him a report that they're doing okay. The people in Thessalonica are doing all right, yeah? They're doing okay, hooray. So this letter is then Paul's response to hearing that the Thessalonians are pretty much doing all right, yeah? So he's writing to them, having heard back from Timothy, Who's gone to check on them? Does that make sense? Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> right, you can stay behind at the end. And I'll go through it with you again. I'm a teacher, by the way, if you didn't know that. It's amazing how quickly people start to understand it when you offer that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so before I read to you the passage... I'm going to um, show you some birthday cards that I received from my children. So the, my birthday was in February. But I've kept these because I like them. So I just want to show you these birthday cards. This one was from Reuben. So they chose their cards themselves and they wrote in them themselves. They decided what to write. Them. And uh, he chose this one. It says in big letters, best dad ever. And underneath it says, from your favorite child. <laughs> so Reuben is eight uh, when he wrote this. And inside he says, to daddy. Very happy birthday. Love from Ruben. To the point. Love it. Very happy birthday. There we go. That's my card. Um, this was from my middle child, Rebecca. So she was five at the time when she wrote this. She's six now. So it's got a picture of a little girl on the shoulders of her daddy there. And it says, the card says, Daddy, I love you. Happy, happy birthday. That's what the message says on the card. And if you look inside, this is what she has written. She has written in her own writing. She says, to daddy. I love you so much, I will burst. <laughs> I hope you like our presents. Love from Rebecca. 
And then she's done a picture of me saying, yay, and I'm next to a, either a cake or a present or something. And there I am with my spiky hair. So there we go, that's me. As she always points out, you have spiky hair, Daddy. Um, this one, so that's this one was from my youngest daughter, Sarah. She's four, so she chose a squirrel with a lightsaber. That's what <laughs> she chose for her card. And Claire has transcribed, my wife Claire has transcribed what she's written. Dear Daddy, happy birthday. She says, I love you, I love hugging you, I like dancing and twirling and playing party games with you. Love from Sarah. And then she's written her own name and she's done some kisses. So that's good. Um, My children, clearly, very affectionate towards me. And I love reading these cards. I love receiving these cards. They make me feel loved. And when I read this passage to you, I don't want you to focus on the theology of it or anything like that. I want you to focus on how would receiving this letter make the people who were receiving it feel? Okay, And what does the way that Paul's chosen to write this letter tell you about how he relates to them? Okay, so I'm going to read like it says there. I'm going to read. No, it doesn't say there. I'm going to read like it says there. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 3, 13. So basically all of chapter three and a little bit of chapter two. I'm sorry, I haven't got the words to put on here. So if you haven't got Bible, you're just going to have to listen. Um, At the start, I just want to read one verse right from the start, right at the start. They wrote this. This is like the second verse of the book. It says, we give thanks to God always for you. For We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and love. So that's nice. Right. Let's read all this. OK, this is what he says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers and sisters, for a short time in person, but not in heart, we endeavoured more eagerly and with great desire To see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labour would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. And we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Wow. How would you feel to get that message? You'd feel pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Paul and I'm, well, it's Paul and Silas and Timothy, but it's a bit of a mouthful saying all that. So I'm probably just going to say Paul most of the time. Clearly really cared about the people he was writing the letter to. He clearly really loved the, the um, Thessalonians. He clearly was very affectionate towards them. And, um, and also, it seems to go both ways, doesn't it? It seems to go both ways. It seems to be. So Timothy's message back was that the, Thess- the Thessalonians were longing to see Paul just as he was longing to see them. So this relationship goes both ways. So this this implies that what he's writing in the letter, it wasn't just for show. He wasn't just putting on nice words and platitudes. It represented how he really lived with them because the relationship goes both ways. In fact, five times in the preceding passage, he says words like, you remember what we were like with you and remember how we acted when we were with you. So he wouldn't have said, remember what I was like when I was with you, if he was then going to go on and write something that was completely out of character. Clearly, the way that he was writing was in character was in character with how he was when he was with them. Yeah. And um, and clearly he must have they must have really cared for these people and loved them for there to be such a deep affection being reciprocated back from the people in Thessalonica. And it's amazing that. They had developed such a deep bond of affection and love in such a short space of time. I wonder, because they were only there for a few months. I wonder, what did they do? How did they, like, what happened to make them so loving and caring and affectionate and tender towards one another? They must have, I don't know what they did, but they must have been really nice, yeah? At a a basic, they must have been really, really nice and kind to one another. And um, what's interesting about this is, (laughs) <laughs> is that he didn't necessarily have to have reacted that way. So he was concerned when he left Thessalonica. He was concerned about the church because he'd only been there for a few times. And it's interesting that his response was, are they doing okay? See, it says that he could bear it no longer. It wasn't, it wasn't, I need to shore up my reputation as a church builder. So, we heard in the first talk how Thessalonica was a, was a really big city. It was a major city. It was on a big trade route. How everything that happened there would be communicated far and wide. How um, everything that happens there, people would have heard about. See, if the church had been doing badly, people would have talked. Yeah, people would have heard, people would have heard about it. Um, people would have said, you know, oh, have you heard about that church that Paul tried to start in Thessalonica? Didn't go well. See, because he left before the job was finished and his reputation, if you like, as a church builder, as a church planter was on the line. But he doesn't seem in the slightest bit concerned about that. See, all he's concerned about is, are they doing all right? Are they doing OK? It's like when you knock something over. Someone knocks something over and breaks something. What's your first response? Is it, oh, no, you broke it? Or is it, oh, no, are you OK? Do you get what I'm saying? Like his, his concern when it went wrong, when he was forced to leave early, when the job wasn't done properly, his concern was, are these guys doing all right? His heartfelt affection towards them comes out. He's not in the slightest bit interested in how it would appear if it went badly for his sake. 
And um, and we need to. I think we need to buy. We need to be like this as well. When things go wrong, and they will go wrong, our focus should be on caring for and loving for people. And um, we could talk about this as individuals, but this letter is written to a church. So I want to talk about this from a church perspective. Is the thing gone? Oh, there it is. There we go. Um, I want to talk about this from a church perspective. So there are different pressures that can come on a church. And one pressure that's talked about in this book here is persecution. So Paul is concerned about them because the pressure of persecution is coming on the church and he's concerned whether they're going to be doing all right, whether they'll be doing okay. And um, I don't feel particularly equipped from experience to talk about that. So I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about a different kind of pressure that can come on churches, which actually is in the book as well. I'll get that in a minute, um, which is what happens when we get people from all different walks of life joining a church. Um, because it can, cause we need to really focus on caring for and loving for one another. But when we get people who are, when you get lots of people all very different, it can sometimes be difficult to do that. And we need to be careful because it's not always easy being nice to and loving for people who are really different to you. Um, I've lost track where I am. Here we go. Oh, yeah. And actually, it is topical to this passage. It is topical to what we're talking about today. Because culturally, Paul was very different to the people in the church of Thessalonica. It says, we look at Acts when he's talking about um, what happened there. It talks about the some Jews became Christians and some of the Greeks as well, some of the non-Jews. So Paul was culturally very different to some of the people in the church that he was building there. But yet he still managed to create, despite being really different to them, he still managed to create a deep relationship and affection for them. And um, people in the early church had this problem too. So when, at the very start of, um, so all the first Christians were very culturally similar and that they were all Jewish. Yeah, all the first Christians were all Jewish. But then they had all kinds of people very quickly joining the church from all different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures. And they had to work out very quickly um, what was culture that was just for them that they could... Sorry, I'm making a mess of this. Let me start that bit again. They had to work out very quickly what was what culture was just for them so it didn't matter if other people didn't do it. And actually, what was really important and what did they need to focus on? There were some things that were really deeply embedded, this is for the very first Christians, that were really deeply embedded in their culture, even deeply embedded to the extent of how they related to God. And yet they had to change. So the two I'm going to look at specifically, one is regulations about eating. So they're all kind of culture and rules and regulations about how they should eat. And another one was about circumcision. So circumcision was something um, which is really important. So um, Jews thought that in order to uh, belong to God's people, you had to, or if you were male, you had to be circumcised. But they quickly realized that this was not something that they had to make new Christians do. So there was a bit of antagonism in the, in the early church, because some people thought they did, and some people thought they didn't. They realized quite quickly that actually this was not something that it was required for Christians to do. Thank you, Jesus. Um, <laughs> um, but it was, it caused a massive, it caused really big, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Discord. It called massive arguments. If you look at some of the language that's used and some of the other letters that, that they used to write about this, you can clearly see this was a really emotive issue. And yet they had to face it head on. 
Another one was about regulations to do with eating. Um, <coughs> so again, was something that so this was deep embedded in the culture. Yet they realised that actually this has got to completely go. This has completely got to go. Not only have we not got to make other people do it, but we have to change as well. So these early Christians realised we actually this is our culture. Sorry, I haven't got loads of Bible verses to justify what I'm saying here. I didn't have time to get them all. Sorry about that. If you'd like to speak to me later, I'd be very happy to show you where I'm getting this from in the Bible. But you know these these cultures. How they eat, the regulations about food and circumcision, they, they literally go back thousands of years, weight of culture in the churches goes right in there, in their culture goes right back to Moses' time. Yet they had to put that to one side. And as we grow as a church, this is going to become more of an issue for us. As we get lots of different people from all different cultures joining our church, we need to think carefully about what's important and actually what's unhelpful. And as a church, we're culture, um, which is a good culture. So there are five values that we're trying to build in our church at the moment. Can we name them? Can we get them as a church? Okay, shout out if you can get one. Family, passion, honour, courage, authenticity. We got there. Honour, authenticity, passion, courage and family are values that we are trying to build into our culture as a church. Just to be authentic with you here, I, I had to look one of them up on the internet. Okay, I could only remember, I could only remember all four, only four of them. Okay, but I know that you want to honour me, so I'm happy to say that because I know that we're passionate about being a family, and I'm encouraged by that. Okay, we just. Um, so how do we do this, though, without pandering to people? Okay, Because we're not talking about toning down our values to make people feel comfortable. But as you read the rest of the letter, it's clear that despite his great affection for them, it's clear that Paul is very confident in challenging them about how they live. And we want to put Jesus first. See, our number one aim is we put Jesus first. We want to bring honour to God. We want to bring glory to God. And it's clear from reading the Bible that our number one aim is to bring glory to God. And the way that we bring glory to God is by loving him. And the way that we love God, the way that we show God that we love him is by loving other people. So there's no disconnect between bringing honour to God and wanting to um, make people feel welcome. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, the circumcision, the regulations about eating, these were part of their culture. And that made them distinctive as a people. And we are given... One instruction, one very clear instruction. There's one thing that Jesus clearly tells us in the Bible about what we are to do as Christians to be distinctive. It's in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul is clearly putting this command into action by demonstrating genuine love and care and affection for the Thessalonians. And not just in this letter, but it's clear from his interactions from the start that that's how he interacts with them. And um, so in our life group, we've been doing something called Strengths Finder, which has been fun. Um, so what that is, if you don't know about it, it's... Um, something that you can do to find your strengths. <laughs> so it's a book called Strengths Finder. You buy the book and it tells you all the different strengths that people can have. And there's a test you can do. You go online and you answer these questions. You need to buy the book because you have to put a code in and you're about to do it. And at the end, it tells you what your strengths are as an individual. 
So it basically it tells you what you're like, what you're good at. And it's really, really, really interesting. Um, so we've done it as interesting to see it as individuals. It's interesting to see it as a group. It's interesting to see as couples what different strengths you have. People laughing over there. Um, and um, so one of my strengths, so I recommend it if you haven't done it, my strengths are about thinking and coming up with ideas and strategizing. And Claire, my wife's, her, her strengths are about relating to people and caring about people and being practical. So I was explaining my talk to her and I was saying about how good it was and I was um, <laughs> telling her about how it's about loving people and being really loving and kind to people, loving people, which I thought was great. I thought that was really good. And I was very happy to leave her that. And so Claire said to me, she says, well, how do you love people? I thought, well, that's a really interesting question. I was very happy to leave it at the concept stage. <laughs> but she was like, well, what does it actually look like? So I thought about that. So I think you love people by meeting their needs. So the next question is, well, what, what needs do people have? What needs do people have? Um, so there's different ways we can think about this. This I want to show you something that's quite helpful to think about the needs that different people can have. And you've probably seen this before, many of you. It's called, if I can press the right button, it's called Maslow's Hierarchy. Oh, are we in the right place? Have I already gone through? Oh, have you already seen it? No? Okay, here we go. Did I do it wrong? Oh, here we go. There we go. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Many of you would have seen this before. It's not perfect, but it's a nice place to start. It's a good... Um, it's a good place to start. So we can see it. So we can see at the bottom there. So foundational needs are your physical needs. So you need to have stuff to eat. You need to be able to get warm. You need to be able to live in a house and be cared for. So that's your basic physiological needs. Uh, then we've got safety needs. So yeah, I've got food to eat, but am I scared? So you need to be safe. You need to feel safe there. So then above that, we've got when we feel, when we've got all the needs we need for our body, and we feel safe and secure, another need that we have, you can see it keeps going up. So then we've got it says esteem needs. So once I'm feeling loved and looked after, <coughs> um, feel good about myself. And then the very top one is once all those needs are met. The top one says self actualization. So once all my needs are met, then I can go on and be my best self. So if you're listening to this. Uh, later on, you can just search for Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Um, so the idea is if you're spending all your life uh, every day just trying to get food to eat, yeah, if you're all day every day is trying to get food to eat, it's going to be hard for you to progress and develop as a human being. So I would say pick one. Everybody has these needs, yeah? So pick a need. There's going to be people... who have. There's going to be different people in the world who have these different needs. So it's a good place to pick one. And... Um, and as, as a church, we are meeting, so we're doing different things as a church to meet these different needs. So, for example, uh, we're, what we're doing with the children's storehouse, that's, that's the very bottom one, giving people clothes. Yeah, and then there's other things that we're doing. So we've been doing some parenting courses to help people run their lives effectively. Um, so as research has come in over the years, this has actually been improved and been built upon and people have um, added extra things to this. So additional research has shown that this is actually the case. If I can press the right button, there we go. <laughs> so the foundational need that we all have there, access to the internet. So I didn't do that. I, have to, I can't take kudos for that. Um, 
Um, but actually, I'm going to I'm going to slightly change that and bring it back around to what we're talking about. I think there is a more uh, foundational need to that one. So it's our relationship with God, even more foundational. All the things there. So we need to have our relationship. See how I did that? Eh? We need to have a relationship with God fixed. And you might be asking, I thought to myself, am I saying that having your relationship with God sorted is more important than even food, water, warmth and rest, even more important than basic, phys- basic physical needs? And I think the Bible is very clear about this. The Bible gives a very clear answer. The answer is yes. Yes, it is. OK, because. If we look at it from not just this life, if we look at it from a bigger perspective, we are going to have to give an account of our lives to God one day. And the truth is, none of us, none of us are able to meet God's standards. In fact, none of us even meet our own standards. So even if God judges us by our own standards, our own conscience tells us that, no, we don't meet those standards. So we don't even meet our own standards, let alone God's standards. But this is the message of Jesus. That he loves us, that God loves us enough that he was willing to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our own selfishness. He did this by coming into this world as a person called Jesus. He lived a perfect life and he chose willingly to be tortured to death. And in dying, Jesus took upon himself, God took upon himself all the consequences for our sin and our selfishness. Selfishness is what the Bible calls sin. But he didn't stay dead. God raised Jesus up from death and now has given him all authority over all things. And he will return again. Jesus will return again, but he's not going to come as a little baby. He's going to come in power. He's going to come in glory and he will remake the world, destroying sin and death. And the only way that we have access to the new world that God is going to make. As if we have had our sins, if we'd have our selfishness forgiven by Jesus. And it's really easy to do this. All you have to do is admit to God that you have made mistakes. Admit to God that you've been selfish. Ask him to forgive you and declare that you will put him in charge of your life. And in that moment, in that very moment, God promises that he will never leave you, but he will fill you with his Holy Spirit, even though you may not feel any different, he will come and be with you and live with you forever and empower you to live a life that pleases him and mark you as his own child for all eternity. And if you want to do this, you can do this right now. You can ask, you can say to God, God, I admit that I've done things wrong. I want you to forgive me. I believe you will forgive me because of what you did through Jesus. And I want to make you in charge of my life. And if you've done that, if you want to do that, I'm very happy to talk to you about that at the end. And I mentioned there that um, Jesus is coming back. And that's another topic for uh, that's another topic. That's another topic that comes up in this book. And in a few weeks time, I believe Joe Williams is going to do a talk about Jesus coming back. And um, actually, I've got uh, a quote from Simon Clay that it's going to be a masterclass. So no pressure, Joe. He's not here at the moment. So hi, Joe, if you listen later, you didn't know I was going to say that, but. I think you're great. Right. Um, So fixing our relationship with Jesus is the most basic need we have. However, throughout history and even now, Christians use the excuse of, oh, I'm meeting people's spiritual needs to not then go and meet people's physical needs as well. It says in the book of James, James 1 verse 27 says the religion that God our father accepts as pure and faultless as this to look after orphans and widows in their distress. 
and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And the very next passage in... Um, Oh, sorry, I just jumped a bit there. So, and then also later on in, in the book of James, it says, without actions, if you don't put into action your faith, then it's actually dead. So we can't use the excuse of I'm meeting people's spiritual needs to not also meet people's physical and social needs. It's not biblical Christianity, and we should not and cannot be doing it. It's not. Um, so th- the next thing I want to read is one which is it's really I find it incredibly challenging and it really stays with me. And um, again, I'm sure it's one that you're familiar with. It's in the it's in the chapter of Galatians. So it's in Galatians chapter two. And Paul, the same person who wrote this letter, is talking to them about a time when he met with some of the uh, some other Christian leaders, so to speak. So he met with Peter and James and John, who were members of Jesus's original 12 disciples. So Paul had used to persecute and murder Christians, but he had then turned into a Christian. He was planting churches. And Peter and James and John, the people who were with Jesus originally, were also going around planting churches. But for a long time, they never actually met. And they finally met. And they realized that... So they realized that they both agreed, that they both had the same gospel, they're both preaching the same message, and they encouraged one another, and it was really good. And they said, yes, we can clearly see both of you have been sent by God. And as they were just about to leave, they said, the one thing, the one thing that we really want you to remember, the one thing, is to look after the poor. Look after the poor. And Paul said, it was the one thing that I was really eager to do. And the very next passage in the book of Galatians, Paul is then talking about a time when he came into a fierce disagreement with them about something else, about a theological matter. In fact, again, it was about regulations about eating because it was so embedded in their culture, they were struggling to deal with that. So again, they had this big disagreement about theology, about how they should live. But the one thing, the one thing that they were emphatically, totally, completely agreed on that was not even up for debate was we need to remember and care for the poor. So I, I, it just really sticks with me that despite all these, despite all these differences they had about uh, about theology and all these and all these other matters, the one thing that they never had any disagreement with is we need to care for the poor. And um, genuine Christianity makes a difference to those people in need. Now, I'm not very good. I said earlier, I'm not very good at thinking about these practical matters, but I've been challenged to take this more seriously. So I just came up with a few ideas. What can we do in practical? What can we start to do practically as a church? What can we start to do? Well, I'd say, first of all, get involved in what the church is already doing. We're already doing quite a few things. So get involved. Ask where help is needed. Get involved in things that's already going on. Be part of a life group. They're really good. And build meaningful relationships with people in the church. And pray for us. Pray for guidance to what we can do as a church, where God wants to take us next. Right. I'm coming near the end here. So. At the, at the start, I talked about how our fundamental need well, earlier on, I talked about our fundamental need is fixing our relationship with God and how it starts with accepting what Jesus did on the cross. But it doesn't end there. God wants us to continue to grow and build this relationship throughout our lives. And Paul addresses this. He says that they would abound in love but also be established in holiness. So something really profound happens when we do both. When we pursue God in living holy lives, when we pursue God in living our daily lives in a way that's pleasing to him, and we also, at the same time, provide meaningful care and support to people in need. Right, I'm ending now. There we go. Um, So in conclusion, 
So at the start, I said Paul was, remember, he was more concerned with are the Thessalonians doing okay than he was about his reputation as a church builder. When the church, he was concerned about it, but he wasn't bothered about, is it going to look bad for me? He was concerned, are these guys doing all right? In fact, we're not called to build the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. We're never instructed to build churches. What we are instructed to do is to be witnesses of who Jesus is, what he has done, how he wants us to live, and to love people, particularly the most vulnerable and the most needy. And that's what I want to say today. Um, so we just pray to finish off. Should we stand up together and just pray together? Oh God, thank you that you care enough to do something. You sent your son. God, it doesn't say that you so loved the world that you were really upset about the mess we're in. But you did something. God, you actually loved us in real, practical ways. Thank you that you sent Jesus to meet our most important need. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're with us now and you continue to meet our needs. Thank you that you promise to provide for us, that you are a faithful and good father, that you say that you know what we need and you will give it to us. God, help us too to be loving in the way that you are loving. Help us to be transformed by the love that you have for us. That we would be kind, considerate, compassionate and caring. That we would build deep and affectionate relationships, just as we've seen in this, in this book, in, the, in this passage in the Bible today. God, I pray that love would not just be a concept for us, but it would be real and tangible and practical. And help us as a church to continue to make a difference to people who have genuine needs. God, because we want to honour you, and we want to live a life that is pleasing to you. And we are so amazed at what you have done for us, at your amazing generosity. You did not hold back, you did not count the cost, but you gave in order to meet our needs, regardless of how much it cost you. Let us be, as a church, a living demonstration of this message. That God is not distant, but he cares, he's here, he's real, and he's working in uh, this world today. Father, Father, Amen. Amen.